gyms. I like going to gyms. I like seeing players. And, uh, you know, we used to sit in Vegas at the Vegas tournament from eight in the morning till midnight, straight through. We, we'd watch basketball awesome. for 16 hours. We'd bring in food. And uh, so I love going to the gym. I love watching uh, my kids play. Uh, but I was quiet. I didn't say I didn't say much. I tried That's awesome. to keep a low profile. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode here on You Think. As always, presented by Audiorama and our friends at Invisalign. I'm once again joined by our producer, Tasha. Tasha, what, what's happening? How, how was the weekend? You know, my weekend was good, Greg. I went to a wedding this weekend. Um, it was about a three-hour drive away. And unfortunately, one of my friends, after we drove back from the wedding, she left her passport, you know, at the wedding reception. And so we had to drive three hours back. So basically, total, total my weekend on Saturday, I was driving nine hours. It's fine. You know, it's fine, but it wasn't ideal. <laughs> you are you are the all-time greatest friend. I, I would have probably told that friend like, hey, we can overnight it. We can FedEx it. Can we move your flight back? I'll pay the change fee. Like to get to get home and then turn around and go round trip six more hours it, is beyond absurd. It was a journey. You know, I was just channeling my inner sports. And you drove or like they drove and you got to like sit in the passenger seat and kick it? Oh, no, no, no. I was driving. <laughs> I was trying. So how did, how does this conversation go down? Hey, Tasha, that was a great ride home. By the way, forgot my stuff. I need to go back. And oh yeah, you're going to drive me? Like what? I, you know, I was, I took a deep breath and I was like, what would I want someone to do for me? Um, and I channeled with that youth sports energy, <sighs> you know, like if parents can drive their children, it's just practice for me. Nine you know? hours. Yeah. yeah. You are pra- a lot it's of great stories. practice for you. <laughs> it is great practice when your kid forgets his cleats. Right. And there's no dick sporting goods within 40 miles of whatever small town you're in. You're very familiar. You're going to look back. You're going to look back on this moment. And you're going <laughs> to feel good about it. <laughs> How was your weekend? <laughs> it was good. We had a, we had a low key weekend. You know, usually we give a, a full rundown of the Olson family um, sports w- weekend update. And it was low key. My daughter had a soccer game. They won. I think it was two to one or three to one. So nice. that was good. And then both boys we're off. And, and because we were off, my wife and I actually made a quick little 24-hour getaway to a music festival out in Austin, Texas. We went out for that. And uh, that was a blast. Austin is a super cool Austin's city. Austin's a really cool city. It's really cool. The food was cool. The live music had a great kind of vibe and energy. It was a thousand degrees. Like, no, not exaggerating. It was 102. Uh, thankfully, the concert was indoors in this new Moody Center. I don't know if everyone saw on Ooh. social media, like a couple of weeks ago, Matthew McConaughey was like the keynote, like ambassador to open this new, like multi hundred right. million dollar right. thing. All right. Yeah. And, and he was like the keynote speaker of opening this event. And it was a, it was a killer. Who, who did venue. you guys, who did you guys see? It was, so it was the, um, it was the iHeart Music Fest mm-hmm. and it was, um, you know, Marin Morris, Zach Brown Band, Carrie Underwood, oh, Thomas fun. Rhett. It was like a jingle ball type thing where like each artist only plays three to six songs depending Mm -hmm. and then they just turn this like circular stage around and on the back side of the stage is the next band so there's like less than five minutes in between acts and they just go one after another it was a really cool way to see a show because like once you were kind of over who was singing and you had heard all their hits it was over they flipped the stage and 
five minutes later, somebody else is singing their best songs. Like it was, it was a good, it was fun. We had a blast. That's cool. Well, that music yeah, was... festival is happening this weekend. I was driving nine hours alone in a car Ugh. crying. Um, but my friend next to me, you know, when they were enjoying themselves, they are watching the Miami Grand Prix Formula One race, which happened this weekend. It was a big sports weekend all around. We had that race. We're in the middle of NBA playoffs. And what's fun about the NBA playoffs is there's actually a lot of family ties in the league. I know we talk about family ties in yeah. sports here, which is something today's it guest knows a lot about, actually. Yeah, it, it seemed like I, I I kept looking. I said to my wife, I was like, why are we not in Miami? That that event looked, and that, granted, I don't know anything about the Grand Prix, but it looked incredible. They brought in like fake, not fake boats, but like real boats in like a fake marina style yeah, outside cool. the Dolphin Stadium. Yeah, It was wild. The, the photos, uh, the people that were there, I saw a picture online. It was like um, Hamilton, the, the driver, um, David Beckham, Jordan, and... Uh, Tom Brady, like the four of those guys in a picture. I was like, geez, yeah. like, they're what? bringing out all the, and you know, obviously the Derby was the, was the night before. So, and there was a lot of, lot, a lot of places going on. A lot of rich people were deciding on where to go spend their money. And I think a lot of them chose Miami actually, but, but not, that event, not the Olsons. <laughs> you guys no, sure? the Olsons we chose, we chose Austin, Austin Tech for a music festival. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you, it's funny you say that about the NBA playoffs though, because something that I've always enjoyed and and it's you know it's not a shock to all of us who you know have these conversations and understand why legacy families do have an uh, inherent advantage you know their access to you know not only their dna and their you know genetic pool they pull from but like it's not a coincidence you see brothers you see sons of coaches you see you know sisters and brothers-in-laws i mean you look at doc rivers mm-hmm. right and not no longer but his son austin has played for him at a time. I mean, you're an NBA coach and your son's on your team. It's super pretty, cool. Pretty cool. I want to say Austin Rivers or somebody in the Rivers family, I want to say their sister, Doc's daughter, is married to Seth Curry. Obviously, Steph Curry's brother, who's also in the NBA. I want to say that whole like Curry. Yeah, and I think it's really cool. I, 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 it's not a mystery why these guys are all in the same league between the access to the information and the early age that they all start. I I just, the NBA seems to really, really have a lot of like family connections, which I always find very entertaining and amusing. Yeah. And we talk a a bit about that with some guests, you know, like what was it like playing for your dad? And you've mentioned that too on the show. What was it like for you and your son playing for you? But um, I guess, what do you think it was like for your dad? to coach you and what is it like for you to coach your son now? Like it's kind of, you know, we don't really talk about the fathers. Yeah, we, we always talk coaches. about it. Yeah. We, it's so true. It's such a good question. I think we always talk about it from the kid's perspective, which of course is, is the priority, but I don't think, I, I think what people don't understand, and I probably didn't understand it when I was on the kid's side of it, you know, playing for my dad in high school with, with my brothers, the amount of pressure that they're under, right. Both internally within our family to make sure that they serve their kid, right? They're still your dad, right? Of course, their obligation is to the team and to everyone, but you know, you're, you're still a father and you're still really connected and really have a vested interest in the success of your own child. It's just human nature. So there's the, the internal kind of family pressure of, I gotta make, am I doing enough to serve my own children and their needs? And then there's the external pressures. There's the pressures from the other families. There's the pressure of outside perception. Are my kids seen as only playing because I'm their dad. So then you end up almost coaching them harder to make sure people see that. And, and I go through that right now, 
granted at a younger level than high school, just coaching and, and being involved with my teams is it's like, if there's one thing people are never going to say is they're never going to say that Olsen favors his kid. Cause if anything else, my kids have to do it tenfold in order for me to tell them what I tell your kid, you know, great job. You're doing awesome. Like, and it's almost like a subconscious way of like overdoing it. So I, I don't think we give enough credit to what these parents go through who also wear this hat as a dad. And I think today's guest brings a really, really cool insight and look into that. Um, you know, he's, he's accomplished pretty much everything there is in the coaching landscape. Um, Hall of Famer, he's coached with Olympic teams, national champions, Final Fours, you name it. Um, Coach Jim Beheim, but he said this past season, following March, um, the start of March Madness, he said this was the best season. They didn't make the tournament. They had a so-called down year for Syracuse basketball. He had both of his boys, his sons, on the team at the same time. Mom sitting in the stands, cheering them on, and the entire family got to really experience one season together at Syracuse. And to hear him come on and kind of share that perspective and share those thoughts and the, you know, the problems and the issues and the concerns along the way um, was super cool and relatable, not only for me, but I think everybody else. So we are uh, so excited today to be joined by Syracuse head men's basketball coach, legendary head basketball coach, Jim Beheim. Uh, as always, thank you so much to our presenting sponsor, Invisalign. Invisalign is the number one doctor-trusted brand, having transformed 12 million smiles over the past 25 years. Invisalign gives you the opportunity to make a trusted decision that can help you continue to build confidence for your child. Find your trusted provider at Invisalign.com or talk to your doctor. So now, please enjoy this conversation with Syracuse men's basketball coach and Hall of Famer, Jim Beheim. Coach, thank you so much for joining us here on You Think. Hey, it's great to be with you. It's been quiet for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we're gonna we're gonna keep this fun, but it's probably not gonna be quiet. I, I wanted to I read an article and, and I know the lofty standards that you've created there. I mean, you are an institution in Syracuse. You are, you know, you are men's basketball, you know, not just in Syracuse, but across the country, your resume. It, it speaks for itself, but I read a really interesting quote following the, your loss in the, in the ACC championship this year, where, you know, it wasn't the season you guys had hoped for. It wasn't the season that met the, the lofty expectations that your programs had for, you know, 30 plus years, but you said something interesting. You said when, in, in regards to coaching your two sons, Jimmy and buddy, you said, this was the best season I've ever had. I, I would just love you to just touch on what that experience was like having both of your sons play for you at Syracuse and why it was such a special season. Well, you know, it, to, I had Buddy for four years, so that was special. As he came out of nowhere. He made himself into a, a, a really good player, first-team All-League in the ACC, uh, a league that obviously was much better than people thought it was this year, as our performance proved in the tournament. Um, but to then have Jimmy this year coming out of Cornell, and, you know, he's the smart Bayheim. He went to Cornell. <laughs> the rest of us are <laughs> – here at Syracuse, uh, but uh, he he came in. They both had great years, and unfortunately, we lost our center when we just started to play really well. We gelled as a team and won four straight games, getting ready for the stretch run. Where in the stretch run, we we lost three games, including at North Carolina and, and to Miami by one. 
without our starting center. And he was averaging 16 and 10 the last six games he played. So we were better than our record. You know, I, I disagree with Bill Parcells here. We actually are a little better, <laughs> a better team than our record. But, you know, it's it happens in sports. And we, we couldn't stop anybody. But we had a, a great offensive team. But just to coach your sons, uh, who were not predicted to be Division One players. Jimmy didn't have a scholarship after five years of high school. He got into Cornell right at the end. Uh, they Coach Earl took him, and and you know he became a really good Ivy League player, and uh, was a good player for us. But to coach both your sons, um, you know I'm all about winning. You know you can't coach 46 years in college basketball, or you can't do anything for 46 years. If you're not about winning, it's winning. That's how you keep your job and that's how you move forward. So, but to have them both play and play well, um, I mean, it was great. I mean, it was just a great feeling to see them out there. And one guy steps up and gets 30. The next game, you know, the other guy gets 26 or something. And it was just an unbelievable. I can't even really process it even today. Um, I had tears in my eyes. Buddy's in here. He's getting ready to go work out and start his quest to see where he can play in the future. And uh, just to see how hard they both worked and, and uh, you know, be a part of that. Um, I can't, I, I really, I, I can't wrap my hands around it yet because you grow up with these guys. They're playing AU. You're driving to Albany. You're driving to New York. New Jersey, Pennsylvania, you're driving all over the country to, or flying, whatever, to see them play as AAU players and then uh, to see their development into really good college players. Um, I can't even, I can't get my arms around it even today. I mean, I'm just, I'm just so proud of them, uh, what they've accomplished. And Jimmy makes first team All-American, academic All-American. You know, he had a 3.9 at Cornell. He had a 4.0 here at Syracuse, which he says it's because it's easier here. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And, and, you, and you mentioned a few times, you said they made themselves good players. They, they developed into good players. You know, one of the big things that we cover here on You Think is just trying to give the resources to families, to coaches, to parents about what that process looks like going through this journey of youth sports. And, you know, yes, everyone wants their kid to go to play in college, but even just to have a great youth sports experience. So when you say your two boys made themselves good players, like what did the youth sports scene look like in your house? You know, were they just playing basketball? You mentioned AAU when they were young, were they playing other sports? You know, what, what did that journey look like as you quote unquote, say they developed into really good players? They both played baseball until eighth grade, ninth grade. Jimmy claims he hit six seventy five in ninth grade or whatever it was. <laughs> you know, I, I think he just made that up, but it's all right. It's a good they story. Liked baseball. They were good baseball players, but then ninth grade or 10th, they both said, no, this is just too slow. They realized the commitment to basketball. Uh, you have to do it all year long. And they made that commitment to basketball right then. And, you know, I believe the book, the, you know, the outliers, the 10,000 hour work and work week and your exposure, you know, early to AU. Like parents, are, there's nothing wrong with parents. We, we had, they had, you know, private workout, workout lessons in eighth, seventh, ninth grade, all the way up through and weight training all the way up through. 
And, you know, I didn't think they'd be Division I players. You know, my daughter did the same thing, and she became a good high school player. She won three state championships, which never been done here, and went to Division II school, played a year in Rochester, and then realized that the social life is much more fun. And, uh, <laughs> you know, got away from basketball. But the boys always wanted to be players. Uh, we gave our daughter, uh, you know, Jamie, the same exact coaching and AU and all that stuff. But the boys just wanted it, and they kept working at it. They were not recruited in high school, and they struggled a little bit in AU until the end. And yet they just kept working. And you can develop. And just because you're not quite there as a high school senior doesn't mean you can't get there. There's a million examples in the NBA. We go Clay Thompson, Steph Curry. These are two of the best players in the NBA. They were not recruited out of high school by any of the big schools. Uh, and and they still carry, Clay especially, still carries that chip on his shoulder. I had the uh, privilege of coaching both those guys at the Olympics and the World Championships. And Clay, every day, came to practice like he was trying to make a team. He he didn't care. Nine o'clock in the morning, just to shoot around. He's He wants to meet somebody, you know. And uh, that's what you have to have, that chip. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just proud that my sons were able to play through all that. I, I thought they'd be good high school players. That's I remember when they were younger, I said, well, if they grow, you know, fortunately, my wife, Julie's 5'11", her family's all big, so uh, they grew. You know, I said, if Jimmy's six, seven, or 8, he might be able to make it. He's a little slow. Buddy, you know, if he gets to be six, four, or 5, he can shoot it. Um, he can be a guard in college. May, I didn't think Division One or high Division One, but they proved me wrong, and uh, they just kept working at it. So they both grew, they both got big, and they both worked hard. So it's a, just those it's circumstances. A good, it's a good com- it's a good combination to have right there. What, do you feel like the the kids, all, all of your children? Do you feel like they grew up again, growing up in Syracuse, where you you are a basketball institution, the last name? Do you feel, do you think they felt any sort of like external pressures to carry on this basketball legacy? Or do you think it was all just internal passion that they just had? I think they felt it. I mean, they heard it when they go on the road and, you know, Jimmy was at Cornell and went to Connecticut and they were just killing them down there. They don't like (laughs) it too much down there at Connecticut. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, he heard it, but he heard it, but they just kept going. They just kept their head down kept going. I remember once my daughter got razzed a little bit on the road and uh, she had a good game and afterwards they asked her and she said, I'm a Bayheim. I don't listen to that stuff. I just keep going. (laughs) I love that. But uh, yeah. Was this something you had to talk to them about when they were young, when they were kids growing up in the youth sports scene? Like, Hey, our last name, you're going to have eyeballs on you. You're going to be people in the gym that are going to be showing up just to see, Hey, what's Jim Bayheim's kid? How, How are they? You know, or is this just something you felt like they were able to handle just from being around your team, being around the program since, you know, I'm sure since they could walk and they just innately had the ability to deal with that pressure. I don't think I ever talked to them about it. Their mother might've, uh, I might've said at some point in time, well, it's going to happen, but I, right. I think they learned that that was part of the, the deal. And uh, they just kept playing, played yeah. through it. And they heard all along that, you know, Buddy heard when he came here from Syracuse fans that he's a Division II player and he never, you know, he'd never be anything. And, you know, they hear that, but you just got to 
that's life. You hear a lot of that yeah. negative stuff and, you know, it's a negative world. I tell yeah, there's no question all the time. And it's fun to be positive. It's fun to talk to people who are positive because everything is you can't do, you know, you can't do this. You can't do that. And uh, you look at a lot of the great, great players. And, you know, I mentioned Steph Curry and mentioned Clay Thompson, but there's other guys that were told, you know, you're not going to be good. You're not making it. I mean, there's the great players like LeBron and Kobe. They they were always going to be great. But you see them all the time. And I'm sure in football, you saw tons of guys in football. I mean, I remember when Marvin Graves was – I remember when uh, the wide receiver, the great Marvin Harrison was here. You're too small. You, can't, you know, he was a better basketball player in high school, Marvin than he was a, a football player. Was he close to come and play with you? No. Could he, was he good enough to play with you? I don't think he was that level, and he Got was it. more football committed. But I remember those two guys, Art Monk when he came here, uh, Freeney when he came here, yeah. undersized, you know, he's not going to make it. Uh, you know, all those guys. The, I think in football there's really a lot of guys that you're growing so much and changing so much. But in basketball – same thing happens. Guys just develop. Like David Robinson went to Navy. You know, he didn't have anything, and he turned out pretty good. Yeah. Duncan, I remember, was calling people to see where he could go to college, and Dave Odom was smart enough or lucky enough to say, "Okay, we'll take him." But uh, yeah, that happens all the time, and uh, it's it's a great thing about sports. You know, it's uh, you see it in all sports all the time. Guys that make themselves into some develop late. And, uh, you know, that's the great thing about sports. It's, it's really a positive experience for anybody in it. There's a lot of negativity bashing at people, but it's, you know, this year, Hubert Davis, they wanted him fired about halfway through the year. Yeah. North Carolina. Uh, trust me, I live in Carolina. I'm yeah. well aware. I guarantee you, they were begging yeah. Roy Williams to come back. They were, yep. who knows what they were thinking to try to do. Yep. And uh, Hubert turned that thing around and they, they struggled. You know, it's not unusual for a team to have some, some problems and still have a great year. But they were getting beat by 25 yeah. at home by yep bottom teams in our league and to turn that around that way uh, that's as good as it gets I think and they were right there you know love is he, he wins them or loses them for him this year if you look at the games he shoots badly that's when they yep. struggled and yep. he shot it poorly in the final game but he got him there and when he's shooting it they can beat anybody in the country yeah yeah, that was a, that was a heck. That was some game. Here, obviously, the Duke North Carolina one. Living here in Charlotte was a big deal. I'm, I'd be curious, Coach. Is there a player you mentioned Tim uh, Tim Duncan and, and David Robinson? You know, players that kind of grew late, didn't get a lot of eyeballs. Is there a guy that comes to mind? And you know, you've been you recruited for forty plus years. <laughs> you know, you've had a million guys that you've come across. Is there that one guy who went on to become an NBA star who you had a shot to come to Syracuse? And you just weren't quite sure at the time and you maybe passed on him and he went on and you said, man, that's one that I let get away. Yeah. I mean, I think it happens. I remember when I was recruiting, you know, this is people won't remember this guy, Orlando Blackman from New York city. And he was just a you know, pretty good player, probably rated 50, 60 in the country. And I went to see him because Albert King was the great player and Albert had 38 and Orlando had four. 
And I remember his high school coach came up to me after and said, see, did you see it? And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I saw it. Well, he's going to be great. And talking about Rolando. And I was like, going, I, I don't know. And, you know, we were tight scholarship wise. And his coach ended up getting an assistant job at Kansas State. So he might have gone there anyway. But we passed basically on him. And he became a you know 12-year NBA player, great player. But usually when you miss an NBA player, you kind of knew he was going to be good and you didn't back away from him. You just didn't, right. you just didn't get him, you know? Okay. The interesting thing in recruiting isn't who you recruit, it's who you can recruit and get. You know, we all know who the great players are. It's can you get, I had an assistant, Troy Weaver, who was great. And he's the general manager of the Detroit Pistons now. And we were talking about players and I said, well, this guy's really good. And he says, well, no, coach. What about this guy? No. And I said, what do you mean? Well, we can't get those two, but we can get this guy. I said, okay. And of course, that guy was Carmelo Anthony, who he's pretty good too. He was pretty good. So he had a pretty good eye for talent there. Yeah, yeah. That season, that season worked out. That season worked out pretty good with him. Yes. Uh, take us, take us back to, so your, your, your kids are growing up. What is, what is coach Beheim when he walks into a, a gym, a, a, you know, a church, a boys and girls club, right? You're watching your kids on the youth you know, sports circuit. Are you the coach? Are you the dad who's sitting up in the corner with his hood on, just watching his kids, not saying anything? I we've talked to a lot of different coaches who then give us their their experience, you know, watching their own children grow up playing. Like, what what would people look back? They'd be like, I remember Jim Beheim, the dad, being what kind of a sports dad? I never said a word. I should I got in the stands high up and I did say something about the refereeing, but I kept it quiet, you know, under my breath, kind of. <laughs> At baseball games, and I just I love to go. I love little league baseball. I love going to the games, and you know, of course, up here at Syracuse, you got to wear winter coats when you start out baseball. Yeah, it's season. a short, it's a short baseball season. Yeah, up there. and uh, <laughs> yeah, you end up with it being hot, but it's really cold. But I love going to those games and going to gyms. I like going to gyms. I like seeing players, and uh, you know, we used to sit in Vegas at the Vegas tournament from eight in the morning till midnight, straight through. We'd watch basketball awesome. for 16 hours. We'd bring in food. And uh, so I love going to the gym. I love watching uh, my kids play. Uh, but I was quiet. I didn't say I didn't say much. I tried That's to awesome. keep a low profile. <laughs> yeah. So so my, my father, uh, he was a longtime high school football coach in North Jersey, right outside of New York City. He coached. I have two brothers. All three of us went on to play Division One football. Um, so you know, obviously we were a football family, but from the time we were kids, we grew up around it. So the same thing with your kids, they grew up in the gym, mopping floors, picking up stuff in the locker room, just always being around. So I, the, the first inclination, you know, the first idea that people have is, well, you know, of course, Jim Beheim's kids turn out to play basketball. He probably wanted his kids to play basketball. He probably forced his kids. It's all they ever knew. Did do you feel like your kids Yes, they were exposed to it at an early age. But was there ever a moment when you had to drag your kids out of the house and say, you're going to practice? Or was it always something that was driven and led by them? They drove, they drove it the whole way. My wife pushed it a little bit. I think one of the best things you can do with kids, she got them the Little Tykes basketball basket, yeah. you know. And yeah. They were one years old. I remember one and two just playing it, throwing that in. And then when they were four and five, playing against each other and banging into each other. I'd have to go in and referee the games because they were just beating each other to death. And uh, But they always wanted it. And I think, if anything, their mother pushed a little bit. But 
I don't remember ever once saying anything about what I, I remember saying vaguely in the car once that, you know, you guys are going to have to work really hard. It's, you know, the odds are against you being a Division One player. I mean, you know, it's it's hard for anybody. And, uh, you know, especially when you're upstate and you're away from everybody. I mean, the thing that the only reason they became Division One players is they grew. They got bigger. You know, they they were six one. They wouldn't probably well, they might have found a way, but they would have played someplace. And I'd have been happy with that. But no, they always wanted it. They always they wanted the gym, they wanted the weights, they wanted to do all that stuff. Buddy used to get up in high school at six o'clock, work out here with our strength coach, and shoot here, and then go to school and play practice there and then come back after his practice there to shoot here in our practice facility at night. And, uh, you know, I've never seen a kid do that. Jimmy didn't do it to that extent. He did it, but not quite. To, Buddy just, when he was five, he would watch the game tapes with me. After a game, I'd come home with a game tape, put it in, and he'd sit there and watch it with me. And if I wasn't home, he'd watch game tapes by himself. He, he always so wanted it. He always wanted to be at Syracuse. Jimmy always just wanted to play. And, you know, Cornell was a perfect place for him and uh, got great coaching, had a great experience at Cornell. That's why is whatever level you play, it's, it's a great experience for you to be in sports. My daughter had a great experience at Rochester the year she played. She loved it, but she didn't want to do it. And that's good. She was... She thought I'd be upset when she decided she was not going to play, but I was really kind of happy that she figured that out on her own. And we all got to stop playing sometime. So, you know, when you know it's time, you, that's the time to stop. No question. And, and it's, a, it's a great segue because a, really, a, a very common question that we get asked by our viewers here is a lot of struggle that parents are having, and you just touched on it, you know, briefly is they say, all right, I have three different kids of very three, you know, three very different interest levels, skill levels, commitment levels. How do I, as a parent, individually balance parent them, pushing one child who needs to be pushed, maybe pulling back off another child? Like, how did you identify and fill the different needs? You mentioned Jimmy and, and, and Buddy had different approaches and, and your daughter, Jamie, had, you know, saying, oh, you know what, dad, basketball might not be for me anymore. Like, what what was that like in your family? Because I think it's something a lot of families right now, especially with young children, it's a lot easier to just have all of your kids do what your oldest did. It just makes everything happen easier, more logistically sound, but it's often not what's in their best interest. Right. The youngest brother in the brother's set is usually the best player in my experience because he pushes, gets he sees the older brother, gets pushed by him. And that's true in our case, that Buddy was a little better player. Jamie, interesting thing with Jamie, she was the best on natural ability alone. We built a court at our house, half court, when they were in eighth grade. Jimmy and, her, and Buddy was ninth, I think. Buddy was uh, in eighth and Sissy eighth, Jimmy ninth. And Sissy has yet to see the court. You know, she <laughs> he did go <laughs> That down sounds there. very similar to my house. I think she I also down have, there. I also have twins, by the way, Coach, boy-girl oh, wow. twins. Wow. Yeah. How old are they? They're nine. And yeah. my daughter, my twin sister, it's very similar to yours. I have an older son and then a year younger. Oh, I have boy, girl, twins. Yeah. My girl, my lone, my daughter, she is the best. She can run around on a soccer field and run. She's never practiced. 
she will not touch the ball between yeah. games. Yeah. But when the game comes, she can run around. So it's yeah. it's very funny hearing you yeah, kind of share exactly. a very similar like she, experience. She was a natural. She could play the game. And and they won three state championships, which is not that easy to do. It was a, not the highest level, but it was a pretty good level. And yeah. they had a really good coach. And they she had two teammates that went all the way through it with her, and they won three. Uh, but she practiced as little as she could. And I remember she would complain. The coach was tough. He was a good coach, but tough. And she wanted to quit almost all daily, but her friends were there. So I knew she would stick it out. But when she got to Rochester and it was the same type push, I knew she would just say, hey, this is too much. We're yeah. not winning. You know, so I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. But yeah, every, every kid is different. Jimmy and Buddy were pretty close. They both worked pretty hard. Buddy just took the extra, went the extra mile. And uh, it just happens. That's just the way kids are. They're all different. But uh, at the end, they both came out to be really good college players. My first daughter, interestingly enough, is 36 now, and she did not want to play any sport. She played <laughs> no sports. <laughs> I, I, I had her go to karate for about two or three months, and I think at the, after three months, she said, Dad, I'll do anything if I don't have to come here. <laughs> it's so and I said, okay, you're good. You don't have to come there. And now she's 36. She's training for a marathon. She's running, she's run a half, couple half marathons. Now she's training for a full, full marathon. So she kayaks and skis and she never wanted any part of sports. Now she, she does all that. She lives out in Montana and constantly going all the time. It's funny. They, they all, they all somehow find, you know, they all somehow find their way. Uh, and the last thing before we transition to, to our last segment and, and let you go coach again, we appreciate this conversation is, is just so awesome. Um, here on you think you mentioned when, when your daughter in high school, you know, was, didn't want to play. The coach was hard. You said he was demanding, but a good coach what, knowing, you know, obviously you being a coach, you know, having that perspective of knowing what it's like to have parents complain and have kids complain to their parents about you. Did you feel like you had a little bit of a different perspective? And how did you, when your kids came to you and maybe had an issue with their coach, playing time, expectations, you know, whatever the case may be, did you encourage your children? I'm a big believer, even with my young kids. Like, if you have a question on why you're batting eighth, go talk to your coach. Don't ask, yeah. don't ask me. Like, yeah. how, did you, how did you encourage your kids to advocate for themselves with their coaches? They don't like to go talk to their coaches. No. No. Jimmy, never at Cornell, he didn't, he's a great coach. But he did. Jimmy had questions. I said, "Well, ask him." And he yeah. he never wanted to do that. I have players will come in and see me, but they don't really want to. Why? That, Why do you think that is? I, I'm not sure. I think part of it is it's usually about playing time, usually, and you're not going to get more playing time by talking to me. <laughs> so right. you know, when I tell players, oh, I know they want to play more. I said, you know, you just got to be better. Uh, you know, you got to work harder. With Sissy, her, I knew her high school coach was tougher than most, but I knew he wasn't overboard. I mean, well, he was a little overboard, but he was a great coach. They, they, they won three state championships, and that's hard to do. Yeah. And But he was a great coach, and I said, you got to just stick it out. And, you know, she had days where she was close to not wanting to. I said, look, you've got to stick this out. It'll pay off someday. And, you know, she's happy that she stuck it out. It was a great yeah. experience for her. And, uh, you know, but you have to talk to each one of your kids, just like it's, I talk to 10 players every year. They're, they're, 
They all want to play more. They all want to get the ball more. That's all part of kids today. They want more. They all think they're going to play in the NBA, and it's hard to do. Uh, but it's not a bad thing to want that and work toward it. You just have to realize at some point in time that may not happen. And when that happens, you've got to have a plan. And I have a great assistant coach, Jerry McNamara, who was playing in Greece, making about $400,000. He finally said, this isn't fun anymore. I'm just not happy. And he just left, left the money on the table, came back, started coaching, and now he's a great, great coach, great assistant coach. So you work it out. You yeah. work it out eventually. The great so thing we, about sports, you learn how to work, you learn how to play with people, work with people, listen, take, take direction. You have some independence in there, and all that will help you when you get out there in the, in the world. It will help you. Yeah. I mean, our, we, we've said numerous times on the show that the, the whole idea of youth sports is for everything you just said. It's, it's everything. If everyone just played youth sports to make it to the NBA or make it, then we should just cancel it. It should well, just buddy, go away. It's, hey, buddy cried to me after three or four games when he was in AU basketball in 10th grade. He wasn't playing a lot. And I told him, I said, you got it. You're getting bigger. You can really shoot it. You're going to get there. You know, and he just gave me a jersey sign on the back. You always believed in me. And, you know, I did. I wasn't just being like a false cheerleader. I really thought as a coach who knows what it takes to get there, that he would get there. And I just want him to know that and know that I believed in it. And he believed that I know what I'm doing. And he got there. And so that's that's. One of the greatest things that's ever happened to me to see your two boys get there, get to where they are as good as they can be. And, you know, that's that, that's pretty special. I struggled when I was a walk-on here at Syracuse 150 years ago, and my mother <laughs> told me, said, just stick it with it. You'll be okay. And, you know, I was like 12th man or something, but I, I it worked. I got there and I started and. You know, sometimes it works, even when it doesn't work perfectly. Um, you know, I wanted to play in the NBA. I didn't quite get there. And, you know, I was already in grad school and coaching, and that turned out pretty good for me. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that career choice actually worked out pretty good. I find it interesting. Take me back. So, so Buddy's, you know, not playing maybe a lot one of his years with AAU. Something that happens that we see a lot with our young kids is there's a lot of moving around. There's a lot of, well, if you're not playing on this team, go play on that. So how did you personally handle that? Like, how did you find the balance between making your kids stick it out? Maybe it was a team with some really competitive players that he wasn't quite at that level yet. And not just say the easy thing is to say, okay, we'll put you on this team. Well, you'll be the starting point guard and you'll be the best player and you'll play. Like, what does that balance between pushing your kids and always having them be on a team that challenges them? but also make sure they get the time. You know, it's the whole Malcolm Gladwell kind of yeah. idea that you mentioned before, but they also have to play, right? They also have to yeah. find time to develop their skills. Take, give me a little insight into your approach there. I think sometimes, not always, sometimes it's good to go move. They got four guards there and I'm not playing. I knew Buddy was in a, he was in a tough spot, but he was with a good program and it was the best program we could get to easily. And so he stuck it out, and I, it did work out. But it, it might not have. But when I came to Syracuse, it was a struggle for me in the beginning, but I stuck it out. Today, guys just leave. Now it's an automatic transfer. I'm transferring if I'm not getting everything I want. Now, 
if you study it, and I've tried to study it informally, that it looks like a lot of guys didn't do that well in the transfer portal. They got someplace, didn't play that much more or played less. Sometimes it works out great. You know, Brady, you look at North Carolina, man, Manic. I mean, he had a good career at Cornell or at, at, yeah. uh, sorry, at uh, Oklahoma, but yeah. he had a great year. But what about the other kid on the bench? There's two other kids sitting on the bench that never get in the games at North Carolina that transferred, right? Yeah. Nobody no talks about them. And that happens no a lot. Probably half, just rough, half the guys that transferred probably didn't play as much or played less or it didn't work out. And uh, that's what happens. I like the transfer portal, but it, it it doesn't always work out. But, you know, kids are empowered to make their decision, and uh, they can live with that. The NIL is something else. It's going to be just a recruiting tool now. People are going to be basically – I mean, they might have always been cheating a little bit. Now it's like the, the, the like Jimbo Fisher said, now we're, we're all, it's legal now. No doubt. <laughs> So that's a great segue. How are you handling this new kind of era of, you know, quote unquote, amateur athletics, which is really no longer amateur? I mean, you've been around for over 40 years. You've seen every transition. You've seen every change to the game across the whole landscape. How are you reacting now to the NIL, the transfer portal, maybe some of the expectations of families, parents, recruits that you bring on campus now? I'm sure that's changed a lot from when you first started. Yeah, that's okay. I've had transfers even in the beginning. If guys weren't playing, I, I don't mind that they want to transfer. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, we have to bring in 10 or 11. I try to bring in 10, nine players. That way I only have maybe one unhappy or two. Right. But when you have 13, you're going to have four or five unhappy players. So I try to keep it at 10 or nine. I don't mind that they want to transfer if they're not playing. That's fine. Um, I had... I can give you an example. Michael Carter Williams wasn't playing as a freshman, but he knew his sophomore year he was going to start. So even though he was unhappy, his mother was a little unhappy, they saw the light. And so, and he had a great sophomore year, got drafted in the top 10 in the NBA. So that worked. But if you're not going to play, then I think you have to look at the portal. I'm good with that. We get calls every day if we want a kid. So, I mean, yep. we don't need – we had a good recruiting year, good class, but if we needed players right now, we could get two or three players tomorrow because kids are trying to come up to bigger programs or better programs or where they can have more of an impact. So, I mean, it, we can work with that. That's fine. I'm more worried about the NIL for the future of the game. There's These collectives are going to get together. There's going to be a pot of money in there, and it's going to be handed out. And so you're going to know if you go to this school, this this right tackle got this amount of money. Yep. <laughs> oh, that's, oh, that's happening now. It's, oh, it's, happening it's right wild. Now. And it's big. I mean, I'm not I'm not naive. We got a recruiting class this year, which is pretty good, 50 to 100 guys, all in that rating, top 15. We didn't even talk about NIL. But in the future, that's what you'll have to talk about. And uh, – I'm worried about it. I don't think it's good for the game. Our, if you could get an NIL money, ideally, like just this is what you got in the community, and the kid got forty, fifty thousand. It'd be great. Yeah. My son was well known, so Buddy got a lot of money, probably a hundred thousand some dollars. 
Jimmy, who just came here, got like 30 because nobody knew who he was. And yep. so that's the way it's supposed to work. But if you see that in the future, and if you got four kids not getting any money and two or three kids getting a lot of money as a coach, you need to help those other kids. You can't do it. You can't do it. But you need to have somebody yep. help those guys with NIL. It's just not fair. Yep. People don't realize we get food every day, and so we give our players a check for 1400 a month, cash. They have to buy some food, but we give yep. them food. And now next year they're going to get another 6000 in academic support, right. <laughs> supreme yep. court decision. Yep. So kids today are getting a pretty good amount of money to go to college and play basketball. Yeah, it's just, it's such a fascinating, you know, just such a fascinating landscape. And one of the last things I'll ask you before I let you go. So, so a recruit comes on campus, you know, I'd be very curious. I, I was recruited at a high school. I had the coaches sit in my office. I had Tyrone Willingham from the head coach of Notre Dame come watch me play high school basketball. And I promise you it was not, you didn't miss anything. Um, you didn't miss out on me, trust me. But, um, you know, so I, the recruiting process I'm, I'm very familiar with and, and went through it. My brothers went through it. But if I come in today's day and age, I come to Syracuse, you're recruiting me to join your basketball team. Like, what is your message that you want your program to be known for, both to the, to the athlete, to the, to the kid, but also to the parents? Like, what are the expectations? What's the expectations of the parents? What's the expectations of the child? How demanding is it going to be? Like, what do you tolerate? What don't you tolerate? Like, what do you want the culture of Syracuse basketball to be known as? I mean, God, you've been built, you know, you've built it for over 40 years. So what in your mind, what do you want it to be known well, as? I want them to know they're going to come here. They're going to be successful. We've been successful. We've been in the NCAA. We've been to Sweet 16 22 times. So we're yep. going to be successful. You will help us be successful or more successful. We've got great facilities. You know, you're going to get a great education. Um, if you're here one or two years and you can get out and go to the NBA, that's great. We'll help you. If you can't, we want you here the whole time. Um, we're going to give you all the support you need. Some kids need a lot of academic support. Some kids need none. They don't ever need it. Need it. They can do it on their own. But most kids need some help. We have a full-time academic person right down the hall. You know, we've got a great strength and conditioning program. You know, everybody has all that. You know, but the main thing is they want to know how much they're going to play, and they want to know, you know, if you're going to have a good team, they want to be part of that. And now you have to talk a little bit about the NIL and that you, there's opportunities. We're the only game in town, so there's NIL opportunities for you. Uh, we have guys already getting NIL money, so it's not new. Um, so you go through all that. You talk about all that. But mainly you're selling the relationship you have, your assistant coaches have, with the player and the family. My wife's heavily involved in recruiting. We post all the recruits at our house. We have our players over there five or six times a year to kind of build that team feeling, that family feeling. And we have 30, 40 people that played here, alumni, come back all the time. And we have three assistant coaches, our video guy, who all went to Syracuse. So we have a culture about family in Syracuse. That's what we have. And... Uh, it's, it's it's what supported us and kept us going for 46 years, that that culture. And, uh, you know, 
we're, we want you here. And every kid is concerned about all that stuff, but he really wants to know how much am I going to play and do yeah. I put into your system <laughs> and, you know, uh, are we going to win? Do we have guys around us that are going to win? You know, that's that's what it's all about. Coach, I, I, a quick story and I'll let you go. I, uh, I was on air. I, I call games now with Fox and uh, I was trying to think of the best way to describe. I was calling the Los Angeles Rams game against Baltimore. And I was trying to describe how the Rams play this zone defense that they play. It's like, you know, it's, it's match it's cover. So I'm thinking during the week and I'm thinking on the game and I'm like, you know what this is? This is Syracuse basketball zone match defense. So on the air and, and people, I got such great like response from it. Like people were like, what a great kind of analogy. Like everyone's aware of your defense. So on the air this year, this past season, I was like, you know, the LA Rams, they're running this. They look like Jim Beheim in the Syracuse match defense. You come into their zone. It has man principles, but it's zone philosophy. So I just want to thank you because you gave me a nice little nugget right. uh, that I could use on my broadcast. Well, it worked pretty good for Duke this year in the tournament. And they yeah, to a lot of people too. are doing it. You know, it does work. We're going to play a little both next year. It's going to be a little different transition for us because we're going to get back to a little bit more man-to-man like I used to play in the beginning Yeah, and mix it in with the zone. I think it's more effective that way. But we'll see. We'll see how yeah. it works. You know, they say old coaches don't change much, but, uh, you know, we're going to try that and see how it works. But, uh, yeah, I mean, coaching, the one thing about coaching is you you feel like the same as you did when your first year of coaching. Now, you know, you got a new team coming in, yeah. you got six or seven new guys, uh, four veterans returning. So you're your wheels are turning, trying to get you to where you need to be for next year because it's it's new every year and you have to be as good as you can be every year. And they're not happy here. We had our first bad year and we we certainly can't afford to have two. That's for sure. One, I'm sure you're I'm not sure, sure you're on it. One, you know, I'm sure you're on it. I'm sure you're on it. Coach, this is, this is my last question. I'm going to let you go. So you're in 40 years. It's almost unprecedented what you've done in Syracuse, both as a, you know, a player assistant, you all the way up now, head coach, 40 years in one place. Was there ever a moment you took another job? Like what, what was there ever that one job that came and you said, and you, you gave it a thought and you're like, man, and you just ended up coming back to Syracuse, like, which is home and your blood. Like, was there ever that one moment that was really hard to turn down? No, you know, there was one time I did one interview and I made them come here a long time ago and uh, I listened to them for about 10 minutes and it was a great job. And I just like knew in the bottom of my heart, like, you know, I'm just not, I'm, I'm just not going anywhere. I came Home here is where your heart is. Yeah. I came here as a walk on. I'm from upstate. I came yeah. here in 1962. So I have Ooh. been here for almost 60, 60 I, years. I up. Yeah, pretty good cool. for you. Years. Well, coach, I, I can't thank you enough. You've been so gracious with your time. Um, obviously, your resume, what you've accomplished, you have accomplished all there is in, in the basketball community, both on the international and obviously at the collegiate level. Um, your voice, what you stand for, uh, hearing you reflect on being a parent, uh, you know, not only coaching your kids, but raising all of your children. Uh, it's just such a it's the perfect story. I remember laying in bed watching, you know, a game this year. You guys were actually playing Miami. And I remember that they showed your wife in the stands and of course your two boys. And I looked over my wife. I was like, I got to find a way to have coach Beheim on my show because this is, he encompasses our entire show, parenting, coaching, 
you know, the family, it just everything. So I, I can't thank you enough for, for lending your time um, to us here on You Think. Well, I've been a great, it's a great experience for me talking to you. And obviously I've watched you play football and how good you were and uh, you're good at this too. So you, you'll have a good, you have a good career for ahead of you for a while. Well, I appreciate it, coach. I, I, again, it means a lot and uh, best of luck. We'll be following you. I got a lot of high school buddies from North Jersey that went to Syracuse. So this is going to be a very popular episode uh, amongst my old buddies. So I appreciate you taking the time. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed that conversation with legendary men's basketball coach, Jim Beheim. Um, you know, not only from the perspective of, of course, being a Hall of Fame coach and what goes into the lessons that you know, other young coaches could take from as far as building culture and, you know, his story about being in one place for, in essence, his entire life is so rare in today's day and age where people seem to come and go. I thought that was really interesting. And, um, and then, of course, that dual hat of being a father, um, you know, this past season while also coaching his two boys and having them on the bench and having them juggle playing time and minutes and the ups and downs of, of watching your kids, you know, not only carry out their dreams of playing, uh, you know, their, you know, respective sport, but also they're on your team and you're, and you're obligated to the other kids on the roster and to the school and to the fans. And that balance, uh, as we've talked about a lot is, is quite interesting. So I, that was a, Fascinating conversation. Um, really appreciate Coach Beheim for for taking so much time to come join us here on You Think, and hopefully everybody enjoyed that. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring back in Tasha here. This is what's becoming a highlight of our of our week. Tasha comes in and she gets all sorts of different DMs and texts and emails and, <laughs> and messages. I I I don't want to sound like people are sliding into your DMs, but I feel like they kind of are, Tasha, and just using the excuse of submitting questions as the as the excuse. Yeah, there's so many questions for you, Greg, in my DMs. And one of those questions. I bet. <laughs> I bet. Great segue there. Oh, hey, Tasha, how are you? How was the wedding? By the way, would you let your kids play multiple sports? <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, I can't answer this, but I'll bring it up to Greg on the show. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, Greg, one of the fan questions that we have for you this week, they say, do you let your players play on other squads when you have nothing going on at that That's time? a really good question. All right. So firsthand take on this, and this is just my opinion, which is, I guess, why we're here. <laughs> I was always very particular, and I'm talking years back, very particular about like our kids play for us. We don't bring in anybody else's kids and our kids don't go play for anybody else. Like, we are obligated to developing our entire roster of kids and we are committed to them and we are not looking midseason to replace them or take away time from them. So as a result, they owe it to us to not go play somewhere else. That was my old conventional way of thinking. I have completely changed my perspective on it when it comes to our experience with baseball. We haven't gotten to this yet, Tasha, in the other sports. So I don't know if the cultures are similar or that if teams do all this guest playing like they do in baseball, I haven't gotten there yet. So we'd have to, we'll ask one of our next, uh, you know, guests what, what their opinions, is, you know, what their opinion is when we get there. But just in my own experience where we see it a lot is in, is in the baseball world. And I've really come to change my views on it. I, I've had parents call me that are on our teams and say, Hey, we're off next weekend, a local team down the street. I know the coach. He asked if Johnny can come get some innings, maybe pitch, maybe get some at-bats, maybe get some time doing something. 
And I've really become a lot more supportive of that because I think if a kid wants to take the initiative and it's not done behind your back, it's not done in secret, it's not done with, um, you know, maybe ulterior motives where, you know, they're trying to plot to go to another team or someone's trying to poach them away. If it's done up front and you present it and the reason why and what team you're going with and you, and you tell us ahead of time, I always tell them, go get the reps, right? Like I would be cheating you if I didn't let you go out and work on getting better and get more at bats and maybe get more time on the mound if you don't pitch a lot with us or hmm. whatever the case may be. So I, I do allow our kids to go play with other teams as long as, of course, they're not missing. If we have a practice or we have a game, of course, their obligation is to, is to be with us. I, I don't allow kids on my team to play full time with two different teams. I just think it leads to picking one over the other and they miss too much stuff. And I just don't think it's the right message. But on an off weekend, if you want to go get some reps, I am all for it. I will let you go do it. I encourage it as long as it doesn't alter our schedule, as long as it doesn't get in the way of our preparation leading up to the next tournament. What made you switch your perspective on that? You know, I, I think specifically for baseball, which again is really the only sport thus far with the kids being as young as they are, is we've, we've, you know, we've jumped into, I guess, relatively competitive levels where we've seen a lot more of this so-called guest playing and kids coming in for different weekends and whatnot. So I, I, maybe I'm just more exposed to it now than I was, you know, a few years ago. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the rationale that I've come to is just like any father, just like I am, you want to see your kid develop. And you want to see your kid improve. And to the kids who really want to continue to improve and get more reps and get more time under task, especially in a game like baseball that's so rep-oriented, why would I prevent that kid from going and getting better? Why would I prevent him from getting potentially 12 more live at-bats against kid pitching? And now next weekend when he come plays with me, maybe he has a great weekend. And that's in the best case of the kid. It's in the best interest of the team. So I just think from being around it and just seeing the culture of the sport and that there is an individual nature to baseball, it's kind of masquerading as a team sport. Hmm. It, as long as that individual will does not interfere with the team aspect. The second it gets in the way of that, I shut it down. Nothing can get in the way of the team. But on your own, go get better, go improve, communicate. We've talked about that a couple of weeks ago on our Bring It Up segment. Communicate with the coaches communicate what the plan is, communicate with the child. And as long as everyone's on the same page, don't let your coach hear behind the scenes that Johnny or, you know, Jill was going to play for a team cross town. I think he's looking to leave. That's where rumors start. That's where conflict starts. And that's where things can get a little dicey. Mm -hmm. So just being open about it with your coach. Open, honest, communicate, communicate your intentions, communicate your plan. And very rarely do issues happen when everyone's on the same page. Yep. The next fan question says, do you talk to your kids about nutrition, health, diet? And if so, how do you have them implement it themselves? I think this is a really, a really good question. And it comes at a really interesting time because this is something that we are struggling with. And I, and I think a lot of families out there are struggling with it. It's not that our kids don't want to eat good food. Because when we, when we go to a decent restaurant and we go somewhere nice, like they'll eat vegetables and they will eat, you know, steaks and fish or whatever. Like they'll eat good food. The problem that we have that I imagine so many people out there have is during the week, 
you don't have a lot of free nights to sit home and have dinner at the kitchen table. You typically yep. are all going in different directions and you're eating when you get a chance, right? The kids get home from school. We pick them up at 3.30, 3.40. By the time we're actually home, it's close to four. A lot of times their practice starts at five and it's 20 minutes away, right? So if, you know, to get there a couple minutes early, you're leaving at 4.15, 4.30. It doesn't give you a lot. And then practice ends at seven. So you're not going to go sit down and have a four course, you know, 10 course meal and make sure, right? So you stop and you get pizza or you stop and you get a burger or you stop and you get, it's hard. Like we constantly find ourselves fighting our routine where it's like, we know we need to eat better and we know we need to make it a more of a priority, but we're all fighting this weekly rat race that we do to ourselves. And then we all complain that we don't eat good enough. So this is something mm. as a family, we are like very aware of, and we are trying to make conscious. My wife is awesome about it. If she knows that we have a day, like take today, for instance, where it's like, all right, the boys have practice. My daughter has practice, but it doesn't start till 5.30 or 6, whatever it is. She's like, oh, she will have dinner ready. It will be an early dinner, but it will be healthy. It'll be real. It'll be substantive that they can eat something good. And then we all leave the house and go about our rat race. And then if you stop and you grab a snack on the way home or you stop and fine, that's just like a, a snack. But we had from the time school ends to the time their sports either start or end, They've all eaten something real. That That's something she's great about. And as a family, we are like constantly evaluating that balance. And it's very hard. Hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it goes back to planning, but it's hard when there's so many practices yeah. and everything. You so. have to make it. You have to. It's like anything. You have to make it a priority. Mm -hmm. you, if you don't make it a priority, you will eat chicken fingers. You will eat pizza. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love it. But like at, at some, we can't, you don't, it's not good for them. It's bad habits. It's not a fueling their bodies that are growing. And it's also teaching them bad lessons as they continue to get older, that eating like this has consequences and eating like this has, you know, long sustained issues. So it's, there's both an education component. And then there's also just like a, this is what's best for your busy young body that's growing and developing. Like you right. need to fuel it. So there's, there's a lot of elements to that, to that process. Right. That's good. Well, that's all the fan questions that we had today. You can submit them to Greg Olson or Youth Inc. on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Or Tasha, of course. But yeah, you, or my DMs. Only, or <laughs> Tasha's DMs. Well, appreciate it, Tasha, as always. Uh, it's been great having you involved these last couple of weeks. I feel like you've been a huge... The success of the show is just directly tied to your involvement. So thank you for joining us. And uh, <laughs> as always, thank you all for listening to you think. Um, it, it's been an awesome journey. We, we're just blown away each week by the response and the engagement and just seeing us continue to go up the charts and people really respond to a lot of the content that we are really passionate about creating. So please rate, review, subscribe, wherever you get your pods, go check us out, you think, and uh, tell all your friends, grab their phones, hit the subscribe button, help us out. And uh, until next week, we will see you then. And uh, Thanks for listening to You Think.